This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today our guest is Congressman Adam Schiff, chair of the powerful House Intelligence Committee. First thing up, he spells out how scared we should be about Russian interference in the upcoming election, and he calls out some social media companies for not doing enough to stop it. He also talks about a new package of reforms that are just introduced in the House that are aimed at preventing the next president from doing a lot of the things that President Trump did. Goes into great detail on that. And he talks about the explosive new book from a member of Robert Mueller's team, the, the team that produced the Mueller report that, that Schiff worked with uh, during the impeachment process. And he has a lot of surprising things to say about Mueller and about the book. And now, here's my conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, welcome back to It's All Political. Uh, I, I know you keep a, a tally of this, but this is your record-breaking fourth appearance on It's All Political. You've, you've uh, broken the tie with Stacey Abrams. Uh, and uh, uh, Excellent. I, you know, I always try to step stay one step ahead of Stacey, but it's really hard. <laughs> and uh, there will be a prize for you later in the podcast. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's get on with the, with a lot of serious business going on, of course. Um, and uh, what I want to know, first of all, from your advantage, your vantage point on the as the chair of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, um, based on what you have seen and are seeing, what should we as voters and Americans be most concerned about right now as uh, we prepare to vote in terms of election security? Uh, what I'd be most concerned about is that we are seeing a replay of what we saw in 2016, and that is uh, one foreign power, the Russians, are actively engaged through a variety of methodologies to try to pick our president for us. Uh, and like in 2016, uh, they hope to elect Donald Trump. Uh, in this case, they're trying to denigrate Joe Biden, uh, just as they uh, tried to denigrate Hillary Clinton four years ago. Uh, and, you know, sadly, they're having help because the, the false and unsubstantiated um, messages that they're amplifying, the smears that they're amplifying against Joe Biden, happen to be the same ones being pushed out by the president uh, and by uh, Ron Johnson in the Senate. Uh, so this is kind of an extraordinary thing where you have the U.S. Department of Treasury, for example, uh, issuing a statement uh, just a week ago saying that um, Andre Derkach, this uh, Kremlin uh, KGB-educated uh, Ukrainian, uh, is pushing out false and uns unsubstantiated uh, allegations against Joe Biden to interfere in our election, and it's the same false stuff the President of the United States is pushing out. Um, but, uh, but this is what I would be concerned about, uh, in part and this has also been publicly acknowledged now by the intelligence community, the Russians are amplifying and will continue to amplify the president's false attacks on absentee ballot votes of millions of Americans. 
so um, this is what I'm most concerned about. Uh, even before we saw evidence that Russia was going to be amplifying the attacks on the absentee ballots, uh, I asked the IC to keep their eyes out for it because it seemed like exactly the kind of tactic they would use. And now we see that they are doing so. What can the social media companies do? What, what is their responsibility here uh, to, to, uh, to mute that amplification? Is there anything that they should be doing or can be doing uh, at this point? Uh, you know, it's a really good question. And I, I have constant conversations with the technology companies. Uh, and uh, in part, you know, we are increasingly reliant on them for tripwires as to what we're seeing uh, in terms of foreign interference, because there's been such an effort by the president uh, and the people he's installed now, uh, like John Ratcliffe at the head of the intelligence community, to suppress uh, information about Russian efforts to help the Trump campaign. Uh, so we're reliant on these private sector companies to, to help inform us and the public when they see foreign bad actors doing things on their platforms. Uh, so they have a profound responsibility to ferret out uh, that those false messages and false accounts. Um, but uh, the, the big challenge they face is, what do you do when the number one propagator of false information is the president of the United States? Uh, that obviously puts them in a position of conflict with the president where they have to take down things he posts or they have to put warnings and disclaimers on what the president of the United States is saying because uh, it is deliberately false. But uh, they, they're going to need to be, you know, good corporate citizens. Are they, do, are they doing enough at this point? Are they doing enough? You know, I, I don't think they're doing enough. Um, they're doing more than they did in 2016. But, and they've learned a lot since 2016. But, uh, but they still need to make, I think, a much more aggressive effort to take down information before it goes fully viral, uh, not after, because once... Uh, false messages have gone out, uh, then they've already had their impact. Right. Uh, and the corrective of saying, you know, what you, what you just saw is false uh, is not as good as being able to take action before it's exposed to millions and millions of people. Um, I also think that the social media companies shouldn't be airing false political paid advertising. Uh, they should use the same standard that other media do to make sure they're not uh, allowing their platforms to be used to spread deliberately false information just because they're getting paid for it. Um, so there's more, I think, that they can do in terms of domestic bad actors, uh, more they can do in terms of foreign bad actors, but they are doing more than they have historically. So there is important progress. On the day we're recording this, you and several other top uh, Democratic uh, House chairs have released a series of reform that kind of look at the world uh, as what it would be post Donald Trump, uh, whether that comes uh, in January or down the road. Uh, and many of these reforms are inspired by things that happened during the Trump presidency. And you've, you all patterned this after uh, reforms that went into effect uh, after Watergate back in the mid 70s. Um, which, which one of these would inspire the biggest changes out of the, uh, out of the package you announced today? Uh, you, you were there with several other, as I said, with several other House chairs and uh, the Speaker, of course. Well, I think among the most important um, is uh, in order to provide an effective check on a runaway presidency, a lawless presidency, uh, it's necessary to be able to expose wrongdoing in an administration. 
there are a number of mechanisms to do that. We have inspector generals, another post-Watergate reform to do that. We have a whistleblower process. The president has taken actions to eviscerate those things, uh, to retaliate against whistleblowers, to fire inspector generals. So we have reforms to address that, to protect both. Um, but, but I think even more foundational is the need for Congress to be able to do oversight, to be able to interview whistleblowers, to get documents from agencies, to follow up on inspector general investigations. Uh, and here, we have seen the most comprehensive obstruction of Congress, indeed one of the um, abuses that the president was impeached for. And the bill provides an expedited mechanism where Congress can enforce its oversight. Uh, it can go straight to a three-judge panel. It can go straight to the Supreme Court after that so that no future administration can engage in the endless delay tactics of the Trump administration. We are still a year and a half later trying to get Don McGahn to testify before Congress. Uh, Congress can't do oversight if a president can delay their interview of a witness for a year and a half or two years. Uh, and so... Um, uh, that, I think, is among the most important foundational reforms. Uh, I would say, you know, one of the other key areas, and here we're limited in what we can do, and we're going to have to go beyond this package, ultimately, is protecting the independence of the Justice Department, which has been weaponized uh, by Bill Barr, uh, used as a shield to protect people who lie on behalf of the president, like Roger Stone uh, and Mike Flynn. Uh, but also used as a sword to go after the president's enemies uh, and, uh, and may be used again in e even more destructive fashion after the election uh, in order to try to discredit the votes of millions of Americans. Uh, so um, there, there is a paramount need to protect the independence of the Justice Department. One of the other aspects of this that I found interesting was the um, provisions, the new provisions and reforms aimed at presidential pardons, and it would cover future presidents' uh, uh, families, too. And it also would cover the president uh, potentially pardoning himself or herself. Um, how would those work, and what would the changes be involved there? Uh, we want to make sure that, that our system lives up to the, um, the principle that no one is above the law. So how do you do that when a president can commit crimes while in office, uh, as long as he has an attorney general who says, well, you can't prosecute a sitting president. Uh, and if the president remains in office long enough, they can avoid um, accountability by waiting out the statute of limitations. Uh, and people who might testify against the president, the president can dangle a pardon over their head and say, hey, if you keep silent or you lie, I will pardon you or I'll commute your sentence as I did with Roger Stone. Um, or the president will, as he has suggested, he believes he can do, pardon himself prospectively. I pardon myself for many crimes I've committed or may commit in the future. Uh, so what this bill does is a number of things. It, it provides that the statute of limitations is told on crimes committed by the president before or during office, uh, during the pendency of their time in office so they can be held accountable. Uh, it provides that the bribery laws apply to the president of the United States. Uh, and apply in the context of a pardon. Uh, if you offer a bribe, if you offer a witness, I will pardon you for crimes committed on my behalf, then you could be prosecuted. Uh, the president is not immune from that accountability. Um, we provide also that where the president uses the pardon power 
to hide misconduct of family members, uh, as you mentioned. Um, that uh, the investigative files, in any case in which the president uses that pardon power, uh, are provided to Congress so that Congress can expose the wrongdoing uh, and expose whether the use of the pardon is actually an impeachable act of obstruction of justice. Uh, so these are, are some of the reforms uh, to make sure that the, the president is not above the law. These, of course, are, would, wouldn't be passed unless uh, Joe Biden wins and uh, Democrats take the Senate, of course. Even if that were to occur politically, what would be the hardest one, the most challenging uh, provision to pass in a, uh, even if Democrats had the majority in, uh, across the board? You know, it's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, th this package will have considerable bipartisan support in the next Congress mm. uh, during a Biden administration. Uh, because uh, the GOP members who have been his enablers in the Senate um, will not want a new president, a Democratic president, to commit any of the abuses that they saw Donald Trump commit. Now, you will see the same kind of blatant hypocrisy that we see now with the uh, effort to stack the Supreme Court, uh, where you have Lindsey Graham uh, saying, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, hey, if there's ever a vacancy, um, during the last year of a presidency, um, I won't support bringing something up and you can use this against me. Uh, you couldn't have more graphic uh, um, hypocrisy than that. Um, so these same senators who right now are either silent or complicit uh, in the president's abuses, um, who refuse to um, hold him accountable where he obstructs Congress, just wait for them to be indignant that any Democratic administration would delay in any way complying with the congressional system. So, so, you're hope, so, so you're hoping for some future hypocrisy from Republicans on this. I, I, I guess if you put it that way, uh, some, some uh, you know, um, benevolent hypocrisy from the Republicans for change. Benevolent um, hypocrisy. I love that. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in terms of which um, would be the most difficult to achieve, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think that perhaps um, the most significant, which is the expedited enforcement of congressional subpoenas, and there the obstacle may not be the Congress, it may be the stacked Supreme Court um, that has resisted, uh, as we see from a, a Court of Appeals opinion recently, uh, resisted Congress's power of oversight, um, and, uh, and may resist, resist even further the injunction from Congress that, hey, court, um, when you delay and you allow an administration to delay, you become part of the problem. Uh, so um, that may be a challenge, but, um, but one that we hope we can overcome. We'll have more of my conversation with Adam Schiff after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And now here's more of my conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Speaking of expanding the court, 
um, you know, in light of uh, the the death of uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, it looks like, and I, I, you may disagree with me on this, but I, the Republicans have uh, clear sailing to to get another justice on the court. It's a very strong six three majority, um, and then a lot of Democrats and others are 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 suggesting that Democrats, if should Biden be elected, should Democrats take the Senate, hold the House, that there be a series of reforms. And I wanted to get your take on each of these. Do you do you support eliminating? And, and perhaps as a future senator yourself someday down the road, uh, do you support the eliminating the filibuster in the Senate? Uh, you know, I, I am inclined to eliminate the filibuster in the Senate. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think that the senators, uh, if uh, Mitch McConnell falls through, as he shows every intention to do so, uh, and violates the McConnell rule, uh, and stacks the Supreme Court, I think the de- a Democratic Senate will need to consider how do you unstack a Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, and so I don't think they should ex- exclude any possibility, whether that's adding justices, imposing term limits, uh, or some other measure uh, to make sure that the Supreme Court is in fact representative of the country, uh, not representative of the minority, which has, uh, has violated its own rules to stack uh, the justice system. So um, I would be open to considering uh, any of those options. So you'd be okay with stacking the court, with expanding and, you know, stacking, expanding to 11 to 13 members? Um, I would be open to unstacking the court. Um, and when you say unstacking, what does that mean? Well, in other words, um, the, the Republican majority in the Senate has stacked the court by denying President Obama an appointment, even a hearing for his nominee, Merrick Garland, right. uh, and has uh, forced through a nominee in violation of its own rules uh, in the case of the vacancy created by the passing of, of Justice Ginsburg. So they're stacking the court. Um, they're using their majority to stack the court. And Democrats, if in the majority, will need to figure out how do they use their majority to unstack it. Uh, and that may take the form of increasing the number of justices or imposing term limits or some other measure. But I, I do think that that's something that the Democratic Senate will need to explore. And uh, what if, you know, a lot of Americans uh, probably don't know that that there's nothing set in stone about the size of the Supreme Court. What would you say to people who want to, uh, uh, who might push back on like, well, no, no, it should, even Justice Ginsburg said nine is a good number. What would you say to, to, to push back on that? You know, I would say that um, those that would say uh, on first impulse, and I was certainly among that group until recently, um, that we shouldn't increase the size of the court, would also say you shouldn't jam through an appointment in the last 40 days of administration. They would also say you shouldn't withhold a seat on the Supreme Court and effectively change the number of justices to eight for an entire year for political advantage. Um, so I think people would say you shouldn't do any of these things, but uh, if one party is gonna attempt to stack the court using its power to do so, uh, then they would need to consider the other party unstacking the court. So um, I think there would be a considerable number to say under these circumstances uh, where one party has violated the rules, those rules should not constrain the other party. And what about statehood for uh, District of Columbia, Washington DC and Puerto Rico? You know, I think if, if those areas are um, seeking statehood, that, uh, that those uh, efforts should be um, 
supported on their own merits. Uh, but I also do think that it is a, a way to address um, the disproportionate and anachronistic impact of the Electoral College uh, and the, the degree to which also the Senate um, has concentrated power in a small minority of Americans, where you have 23% of the American public controlling 60% of the Senate seats. Uh, so I think it, it, uh, it, it is worthy to be explored on its own merits, uh, given that these areas are the same size or much larger than other states that are represented uh, in the Senate, um, but, uh, but also as a mechanism for addressing the now uh, historic inequity of how the uh, both Electoral College and um, apportionment of power in the Senate uh, has effectively disenfranchised the majority of Americans. Um, I want to ask you about Andrew Weissman's book, uh, for listeners who don't know, because there's been so many books coming out about uh, the president and <laughs> and uh, and all sorts of other uh, characters from the last year. Weissman was one of uh, Robert Mueller's uh, top deputies uh, in, the, in the investigation. And he said he was frust very frustrated with how it turned out. He said, quote, there was more that could be done that we didn't do. Um, and and I was when this came out, and this, I was thinking, I was like, man, Schiff's head must be exploding when he heard this. Um, what did you, what did you think of uh, when you heard that? I don't know if have you if you've read the book or not, but what did you what did you think when you heard about Weissman's comments? Well, I I think I thought he was exactly right. Uh, indeed, uh, years ago when this was happening in real time, um, I was very vocal in saying that it's a mistake. Uh, for Bob Mueller to accept written answers to questions uh, and not subpoena the president to answer other questions in person. Um, that's a strategic mistake. And I think it was a very costly mistake uh, in terms of, of exposing the truth and the breadth of the president's misconduct. Um, and I'm not surprised that there were divisions within the Mueller team uh, and that uh, an excess of uh, caution meant that uh, ultimately that the, the Miller team um, did not expose the full breadth uh, of what the president and his campaign were doing in terms of their uh, Russian connections, um, but also that it, it, it was a disservice to the American people that they didn't write their uh, conclusions in a way that could be understood, and they left it to Bill Barr to be able to manipulate as indeed Bar did. So I, I think his critique is spot on. Um, I, I'm also uh, um, Im, uh, impressed by the analysis of how the president was able to abuse the pardon power and how that influenced their investigation. And it, this highlights again the need for the reforms in this new package of bills because he writes about how the promise. Uh, the prospect of a pardon being dangled over Paul Manafort uh, kept Manafort uh, lying uh, to investigators uh, because Manafort uh, believed that he would get a pass from the president. Um, how it kept people from cooperating with the Mueller team. Uh, and in that respect, uh, the pardon power was already abused. He didn't need to give a pardon. He just needed to dangle it. Uh, and it shows you know, just the, how the power of that office to do good, to, to give a pardon where there's been an injustice 
by a unscrupulous and an immoral president can be corrupted to do great evil. Uh, were you surprised that Mueller was so chilled uh, by a lot of the things that, that Weissman talked about? Uh, you know, uh, I wasn't surprised um, because, uh, you know, it was, I think, clear during the course of the um, investigation and, and it became even more clear when the report was finally released uh, and through the nature of Bob Mueller's testimony that he was going to be very, very conservative. Um, you know, I, I felt even before the report came out that Bob Mueller was not the type of person who was going to break new ground when it came to indicting a sitting president. That just wasn't going to happen. Mm. Um, I don't, I certainly didn't know in advance that he would be so hypercautious as to not even state a conclusion in his report um, about the president's criminality. Uh, but it, it did follow from uh, a view that, well, if you can't indict the president because it could place a stigma over the president, then you probably shouldn't say that, but for that policy, we would have indicted him because then you place the same stigma over the presidency. But frankly, that whole line of thinking that was adopted by Mueller uh, was not one I agreed with, which is um, the president, uh, as, as Mr. Weissman points out in his book, uh, has more than effective way to answer any charges against him. Uh, and, uh, and so he's not in a position where he can't respond. He, he responded preemptively every day and has responded uh, every day since. Um, so uh, the, the idea that, well, the president can't respond to these charges uh, simply wasn't uh, a reflection of reality. But more than that, the, the more serious argument that you can't indict a president and therefore you can't even talk about the president's guilt uh, in this report uh, is, is undercut, I think, by the fact that um, you could uh, indict a sitting president and postpone the prosecution until they left office. Um, the, more, the more salient issue for me was always, would the president's necessity of going through a trial interfere with the performance of the job? And if you found that that was the case, then maybe you defer prosecution until after they leave office. But under no circumstances, I think, is the need to avoid stigma um, to outweigh uh, the interests of justice, particularly when the statute of limitations may mean that a president escapes accountability altogether. All right, I want to ask you, I know you got to go, and uh, I want to ask you three, a couple quick political questions. You are the frontline finance chair for the Deep Triple C. You're, you're out there raising money and helping uh, the more um, vulnerable incumbents uh, on the Democratic uh, House side. Um, will Democrats hold on to all, well, hold on to six seats that they now hold in California that they flipped in 2018, and will they win back the Christy Smith seat? Uh, you know, I certainly hope so, and then we're doing everything possible to make that happen. Uh, I'm optimistic that we will. Um, I think that the turnout is going to be completely off the chart. Um, number one, because people are more motivated than ever, um, but also because um, by uh, using absentee mailing, um, it will, I think, dramatically increase voter participation, uh, and that will help all of these Democratic candidates. You know, the, the, the practical reality, and this is what makes me optimistic about the November election, notwithstanding all the president's uh, efforts to disenfranchise people, and that is that the, the number of people who believe as Donald Trump believes 
are a minority of Americans. Now they are a large and discrete minority, but they are a minority of Americans. So the Republicans can do everything right and still lose. Um, if Democrats do everything right and register people to vote and turn them out, uh, we not only win, but we can win by a landslide because we have the numbers to do it. Um, it's why the Republicans spend so much time, even before Trump, but particularly during Trump, trying to disenfranchise people um, by closing down polling stations in urban areas, by purging voter rolls, by enacting deliberately burdensome voter ID laws, by trying to enact a new poll tax on on uh, people who serve their time in Florida, uh, or now in the most mammoth way by trying to discourage people from voting safely by, from home uh, during a pandemic. Uh, they know they can't win if Americans vote. Uh, so if we do our job, these six come back, Christy Smith is elected, we expand our majority in the House, we flip the Senate, uh, and we throw that bum out of the Oval Office. And if, uh, quote, that bum uh, is removed from the office, there will be a, an opening in California, a Senate seat opening, uh, Kamala Harris, would, if she would become the vice president. That job would go to Governor Newsom. He could appoint someone to complete the rest of her uh, term. You have developed quite a national profile over the last several years. Of course, on the strength of your It's All Political Appearances um, uh, here on this podcast. And... Uh, and you're one of the, the Democrats' leading fundraisers. You've raised 25 million bucks for the party this year uh, for the party and candidates and, and, and such. Have you told Governor Newsom and or his advisors that you would be interested in that gig? Uh, I have not talked to the government, uh, the governor or his advisors, um, but I am taking to heart something the governor said, which I completely agree with, and that is, let's win first. Uh, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's make sure that. Uh, we deliver Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, to the White House uh, so that the governor will get to make that decision, that difficult decision. Uh, four years ago, we were very optimistic about Hillary Clinton's prospects, and, uh, and they did not materialize. And so uh, I'm trying to do everything I can to make sure that the governor has that difficult decision to make. Uh, and, and that's what I would encourage uh, anyone uh, in a similar uh, circumstances to be doing. Okay, and now for my present for you, for your for your record tying fourth appearance, I'm gonna give you one softball. Uh, that that is the the president accused you the other day. And we're gonna play sound of this because it will be hard to imagine otherwise. But the president accused you the other day, um, of of forging the deathbed request uh, from Justice Ginsburg, um, where she said. You know, she thinks the next president should choose the thing, the uh, the, the the next justice. Um, and the president said, "We'll play what he said there," and you know what he said. Well, I don't know that she said that, or was that written out by Adam it Schiff and Schumer and Pelosi? I, I would be more inclined to the second. Okay, you know that came out of the wind. It sounds so beautiful, but that sounds like a Schumer deal, or maybe a Pelosi or or a Shifty Schiff. What is your response to the president accusing you? He's accused you a lot of stuff. Uh, of forging you or Pelosi or Schumer, but he he, he singled you out. Uh, your response to forging a deathbed request? Uh, you know, uh, I guess my reaction was the same that I've had over the last three or four years, which is, it's a new low, and how much lower can you go um, to to suggest that the dying wishes of a, a Supreme Court justice 
really weren't their dying wishes, that they were some forgery by, by members of Congress. Um, you know, I, I have the same twin emotions that I've had so often during this administration of being shocked on the one hand and not at all surprised on the other, because this is the, the same low character we've come to expect. Uh, Joe, I will tell you that I spoke to the speaker today, uh, asked her if she wrote that those dying wishes because I hadn't. Um, and uh, she assured me that she hadn't either, um, which I guess leaves Senator Schumer uh, in the president's view. But, uh, you know, I, I, it is just one astonishment after another. And, uh, uh, and I, I do, you know, I guess I would like to uh, use this uh, uh, to underscore um, what I think is really at stake in November, and that is decency. Mm -hmm. Decency is on the ballot. Just fundamental, basic human decency is on the ballot in November. Uh, and there we couldn't have a more profound contrast between the very indecent Donald Trump and the very decent Joe Biden. Congressman Schiff, thank you for being on It's All Political again. And uh, good luck and stay safe over the next few weeks. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congressman Adam Schiff for being on the podcast again today. I'd like to thank the Crate One, Karen Creighton, for producing this episode. And a shout out to our fabulous theme music, That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crowsaw. And remember, even when it comes to a dying wish, it's all political. <laughs>